Last time I was here, we looked or began looking at Isaiah 53. It's one of the main servant songs in the book of Isaiah. There's several of them. And these servant songs point us to the coming Messiah. We're moving on. We looked at Isaiah 53, verses 13 to 15, which is really the beginning of the servant song. And then we come to verses 1 to 3 in Isaiah 53. Now, if you'll remember, I said... The previous chapter is, is speaking of the Lord bringing salvation to his people. And 53 is the explanation or the means through which he will bring that salvation, the suffering servant. And then as we move on to 54 and 55, we see the new covenant that God makes with this figure and the salvation he will bring. So there is a movement here. There's a movement through these passages so that we'll see from the beginning that the Lord's promise to save will be carried out through his servant. Now let's read together, or I'll read and you follow Isaiah 53, 1 to 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Being rejected is one of the most difficult things that we can go through in life. We all know what it's like to experience rejection in some way. Perhaps it's as a child or a high school uh, teenager when you want to be a part of a certain group or you even have a friendship with somebody and then it all crumbles. You feel like you've been rejected, especially rejected by those you thought loved you. Perhaps it has to do with a family member, close relationship, something that has fallen apart. Perhaps a spouse has left, or perhaps a spouse has driven away. The feeling of rejection cuts deep, changes who we are. Maybe it's your work, maybe it's your career. Maybe it's a desire to do something new, and yet all around you are those who are telling you You just don't fit. And you go through rejection after rejection. To be rejected means that there are those who are saying you don't matter. At least not to me. And you're not that important to remain where you are and have life go on the way it is. Because for some reason or another, your life has been interrupted. It's something common to all human experience, the the sense of rejection, and many of us, many of you, have a fear of rejection, don't you? It's in us, because we know how much it hurts. What's so amazing is that God becomes man to enter into that human experience. And we're told here that this servant, above all, would be rejected by the world. 
And so he's able to enter into this world and feel that rejection and go through the same experiences that we do and experience the rejection of the entire world to a degree that has never been seen in history. And he did that so that he may be able to be a good and understanding servant. We're going to see that this morning as we considered, consider him being rejected by the world. The first thing we can see here is that he would be treated with unbelief. The chapter begins in verse 1 by stating, Who has believed what he has heard for us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This begins with a question, but it's not so much a question as it is a statement. He says, who has believed our message? The idea is no one has. No one has believed this. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In the previous chapter, the arm of the Lord is the salvation that he is bringing. And the prophet is saying, who has actually received this message of salvation? Who has actually believe that the arm of the Lord is coming? The answer is, is no one. In ancient Israel, they weren't as though they were, it wasn't as though they were faithful Christians or faithful believers. The entirety of the nation, apart from a small remnant, were as pagan as it could be. Worshiping the Baals and Molech and all of these deities of the surrounding gods. They didn't believe in Yahweh in a true sense of saving faith. And they didn't believe his message. There was unbelief in general in Israel. Unbelief with regard to God, their covenant God. And certainly unbelief with regard to a Messiah that's coming. This servant came, and when he came, the predominant reality was he received was unbelief. That's exactly what he found. We're told over and over that he was not received. He came to his own, and his own received him not. We're told that his own family said he was a madman. In John chapter 12, we see that after Jesus had did all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Now we look at that and say, what idiots, right? But the reality is that we were there, we still would not believe even when we saw. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Because apart from God's mercy, we will not believe. As John continues, he says, they said he, he, they would not believe in him. And then John says this, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Apostle Paul quotes this as well. 
He says in Romans 10, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message. Even though they had the message of the Messiah and you look at this passage and it seems so obvious, doesn't it? It seems so clear. And even though they had the message of the Messiah in every part of the Old Testament, speaking about God's salvation, coming through the Redeemer, through the seed of the woman, through the, the son of David, through all of these things, he's coming and yet they did not believe. They did not believe him even when he came. They did not believe as the gospel went out to the Gentiles, as God saving those who are apart from Israel because Israel rejected the servant. Paul faced the Gentiles who predominantly would not believe. Believers in that early church faced a world that simply would not believe and they were put to death. They were thrown into the Colosseums to be slaughtered and ripped apart by wild beasts, burned at the stake, slaughtered as great groups of believing Christians because the world does not believe. Even today, the world treats Jesus with unbelief. How much mocking takes place? How much sacrilegious attempts to put religion out there in terms of, of all types of ideas uh, of religious entities and concepts with, with other belief systems that are being brought into Christianity with little mis, mis, uh, Eastern mysticism and all these things to make Jesus more palatable. But that's not faith in the right Jesus. Because that type of Jesus is made after our own image. And if we do that, then we reject the real one. There is really a relative minority in our world that actually believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's a relative minority even in the South. As much as we like to tout our Christian conservatism, most of those touting the most are furthest away from Christ. And there will come a day that that becomes clear. All the facades we put forward, they will crumble in the presence of Christ himself. What's actually amazing is that in the midst of prevailing unbelief since the fall of mankind, what's amazing is that there are actually people who do believe. The negativity of Isaiah 53 is to highlight the pervasive depravity of mankind and yet there's that silver lining, isn't there? There will be those who do believe. And that belief does not come from our own cleverness or our own ability to logically work through reason. 
the men of Jesus' day, some of them were the most educated and well-versed in logic. And they rejected what was so logical in front of them. That's because the work of true faith comes not by sight, but by the spirit of God working in the heart. And only if the spirit of God works within a believer, bringing them from death to life, there will be no true faith. Jesus said this very clearly to the disciples. Jesus asked Peter, who are you? And he, who do you say that I am? And he said that you are the son of God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So there's two things to consider right now at this moment. If your heart is hard towards Jesus Christ, and you do not believe into him, in the sense of your heart being united to him from this point on, if that is not the case, then you are not a believer. And that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not done this? Have we not done this? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Is that the position that you're in right now? There's only two people who really know. And one of them is you. He would be treated with unbelief. Secondly, we see that he would not be desired. The coming of Jesus into the world uh, wasn't going to be by grandeur and, and earthly magnificence. We see that in verse 2. We see that he had humble beginnings. We see he grew up before him, that is before God, like a tender uh, shoot, like a root out of the ground. And that means it's coming up. He's growing up uh, little by little, just as he did. He, he didn't come uh, as though he were a king uh, immediately to conquer the Romans, he came as a babe and unknown to the world. He grew up in the poorest of the families. He grew up in the poorest sector of Israel and Nazareth. What good can come from those from Nazareth and Galilee, we're told. He was a humble son of the carpenter. When he came on the scene and knew all the scriptures and was so wise, uh, the, the Pharisee says, how does he know these things? He didn't come on a grand war horse, he came on a donkey. He had no beauty, we're told, no majesty. They knew he was a king, but he didn't come like a king because he was coming first as a servant. He seemed ordinary. If we saw him, we wouldn't say, uh, like they said about Saul, that's the man. If we saw him, we would, we would say, really? That's the king of kings? He looked like an ordinary Joe. 
That's why he wasn't revered. That's why people didn't think he was that special. He lacked the notability that the Jews were looking for. They expected pomp and show of a conqueror. They would say things like, who, who would believe that this is the armor of the Lord? They looked at him with the eyes of man. Which is something we always do. It's very rare for us not to look at somebody with the eyes of man. We look at them and we judge them and we determine whether or not something in them is worthwhile. That's the nature of the human heart. To not be so concerned for other people and what they may be like and what we may be missing out and not knowing them and experiencing them. Humanity looks at each other and says, you're not important enough for me. And that's what they did to this humble, regular looking Joe who happened to be God in the flesh. They saw nothing in him worthwhile and they didn't desire him. He was really a homeless man walking around with these disciples, staying from house to house of those who would hold him. He even said, uh, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. King of kings, king of the universe, through his word, all things came into being and he is without a home. We live in a world that judges people by its own standards. And when expectations are not met, people disregard other people as unimportant, insignificant, undesirable. The rich and famous and powerful, those are the ones who are envied and worshiped and desired to be like. There's a thing of outward beauty that so attracts people to these things, no matter how superficial they are. Men and women are drawn. These are all trivial things. What matters, what you can gain in this life and how you appear to other people when God is the one with whom you have to do. And we're not talking about a moment in this world, we're talking about an eternal existence. But what is of worth, eternal worth, is only found in this undesirable servant. Because in him, God and man exist. In him is the atoning sacrifice for sin once and for all. In him is the one who gave up all to save your soul and went to the point of death, being separated from his father to save you. That's in this one. The world does not find Jesus Christ desirable. There's a graffiti, there's a graffiti in 
Rome from uh, many years ago, many uh, decades and, and centuries ago. And what it has, it has uh, the, a cross painted. And on the cross is hanging a, a figure, a man's body and the head of a donkey. And on it, underneath it says, Alexemos worships his God. Do you get the idea that Christians worship things that make them look stupid? He's not desired by the world. So what that means is that if you desire him, that's not normal. The servant's rejected. But if you desire him, that servant has come for you. He has come for you, and that's why you know him. He has come for you with a tenacity that you don't even realize. I don't realize. Because he came to save his people. Thirdly, he would be rejected. As we move on from verse 2, the treatment of the servant of the Lord intensifies. Verse 3, we're told he's despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, not doing too well so far, are we? Man of sorrows, one from whom men hide their faces. They can't bear to look at him. They don't want to look at him. He's grotesque. And he was despised a second time. And we esteemed him not. Despised twice, rejection. There is an expression here of wanting nothing to do with him. A man of suffering and a man of sorrows. You ever seen those paintings? Um, and I'm not being negative by this, but those paintings of Jesus, you know, where he's laughing and smiling and all that. The interesting thing is, is we're never told in scripture that he smiled. We're never told that he laughed. Now, I'm not saying he didn't smile or laugh. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he was good, fun to be around. But the fact is, is that scripture doesn't record this because that's not the issue. The issue is he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering and grief. Every step he took on this earth was a suffering experience for him because he existed in a fallen world as a pure and holy man. And the evil and atrocities and hardship of humanity all around him, he's seeing. And he's seeing in a way that we can't. He's seeing it for truly what it is. And his heart broke. And he had too much when he was standing outside of Lazarus' tomb. And he just started weeping because he saw the mourning and he saw the death. And he had come to save these people but the reality of suffering, even though he knew what he would do, the depth of the suffering and sorrow that he saw in humanity, he took on himself and he wept. We esteemed him not. 
That means we don't value him or didn't value him. We, he wasn't admired or maybe we don't admire him. Those types of things, we didn't esteem him. We didn't care about him. And ultimately, that showed on Calvary. The world as a whole, the Romans, the Jews, all kinds of other people, they're gathered to do what? Crucify the Son of God. What are we as believers to think about the rejection of Christ? How, how should it affect us? Well, the worst thing to do is to not think about it. Because only the thought of the crucified Son of God and the love that he showed for you there when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That it was the joy of your salvation that kept him there. That's what you're to think about when you think about the cross. You're to think about how this rejected man was the greatest treasure that ever walked this earth. That he's the pearl of great price. That he's the very thing that you need most, even though you may not see it. Thinking about the cross, the life, death, and resurrection, you could do nothing better with your time. Because it's only when you see him, not a thought of him, not a teaching about him, when you see him with the eyes of faith as the man of sorrows there at the cross to take on your sorrow, that's when you love him. Why? Because he first loved you. Let me encourage us as Christians, and, and I don't mean this in a, a way of being boastful or arrogant that we're to do this, but in a true and proper way, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be one of those who run around acting like a fool. Live for Christ in your ordinary lives and don't be ashamed of him. because he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And if he is not ashamed of you and me, and we are awful sinful, if he's not ashamed of us, then why would we ever be ashamed of him? The world has rejected him, but by faith, we need to accept him Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word and we ask for wisdom and for knowledge and for clarity. We know we cannot understand these things apart from the spirit of God working. And we pray that he would work today in this place in our hearts. And we pray that we would not leave here in the same manner, in the same way that we came in. Grant that we would leave here as different men and women and boys and girls. In Jesus' name, amen.